Well, you really get to know a person when you go through their stuff, okay? Uh, this past April, my wife Mary's great uncle Warren uh, passed away. He had lived a, a long and good life, died at the age of 93, um, and he had spent most of his adult life in the Fergus Falls area. He was originally born in New York City and helped uh, be a part of one of our first Lutheran Brethren churches in New York City. And uh, after kind of being raised there, went and served in the military, went back to New York City to graduate from Columbia University with a bachelor's in history. Any history bachelor people out there with me? Yeah, no, I didn't think so. Okay, cool. Um, and then he, he became a teacher. He, he started to teach in, in the public schools in and around uh, New York, and then uh, later on got the opportunity to be a dean at Hillcrest in Fergus Falls and served as a dean there, then became a teacher uh, for many years. And after leaving the faculty at Hillcrest, still felt called into education and started teaching at M State at Fergus, and, uh, and then became the art curator there all the way up until 2013. And so he was in his 80s still doing all of the art curating for, for Fergus's uh, community college. And, you know, I had known all these things about when, when I became part of Mary's family. I, I, learned, about, uh, I learned about these details. Um, I, I also knew how Warren was passionate about God's word and about scripture. And so uh, as he was kind of moving into dementia uh, at a later stage of his, of his life, uh, I, I said I had a wonderful opportunity when I was in seminary and learning Greek and Hebrew, and I would take my Hebrew translations and meet him at Viking Cafe, and we'd sit there with bacon and eggs, and he would tear apart my Hebrew translations. So, um, but he loved God's word, and it was, it was awesome to see that. But it wasn't until recently I got to learn some other things about Warren. And as I look through some of his belongings, as we start to kind of go through all of kind of his life and, and all of those different things after his passing, um, we as a family were sorting through uh, some of the mountains of paperwork uh, that he had kept um, over the years, and we came upon this manila folder in one of the, in one of the cabinets. And, and, and when, we, when we turned to it, it said here on, on the tab, letters, and then just had a little dash, and it says, people of note. And, uh, and, I, and I opened it up, and I started to look at some of these different letters. And I want to read one of those letters uh, here, and it's not to express some uh, form of, of, of ideology or anything like that, but instead it's as kind of a part of a history, at least of Mary and, and my family. And, and you got to remember, I was minus nine when this was written, so in 1974. Yep, that's my age. Okay. Um, but it says this, Dear Mr. Olson, thank you very much for your recent message concerning former President Nixon. Much has happened since you wrote, but I firmly believe that the recent pardon by President Ford was a serious mistake which represents a dangerous precedent for our system of justice. First, the pardon, coming as it does before an indictment and before a trial at which all the evidence would be presented, is at best premature. 
We don't even know what acts by Mr. Nixon are being pardoned because all the facts and all the evidence are not yet available. Now, without the help of the legal process, we may never know the full dimensions of history. Second, the pardon is bound to be perceived as additional evidence that there are two standards of justice in this country. One standard for the rich and the powerful and a much harsher standard for everybody else. Regarding 1976, while that's still a long way off, the encouragement I have received from people like you has prompted me to begin thinking more seriously about it. That's why I recently authorized the formation of a committee by a group of friends in Minneapolis. And the committee has been created to carry out limited fundraising activities that should enable me to fully explore the question of whether I should seek the presidential nomination. During the next few months, I plan to travel around the country campaigning for candidates, speaking out on major national issues, and conferring with party and other leaders. I hope that I will then be in a position to make a sound judgment when the time comes. Many thanks again for your thoughtful words of support. They really mean a great deal to me. Sincerely, Walter Mondale. Warren was passionate about Christ and the church. And it not only, um, it not only had an impact and, and motivated him to live a life best trying to love God and love the people that he was in direct contact with, but his faith also propelled him and motivated him to think about how his faith should be exercised even amongst not just his immediate community, but, but, but even beyond that. You know, as I really think about it, the legacy that Warren left has made an impact on me. His love for Jesus and his motivation for seeing his faith be put in action has something that's been motivated me and I know motivated many others. Actually, here at Triumph, if any of you have ever gone through confirmation or have had kids go through confirmation, we have a little red book and in that little red book is, is where we have the explanation of, of the catechism, where we walk through those questions. Well, he was one of the senior editors who put that together. And so even here, we get to see a little bit of Warren's work and how God used him as an instrument. As we continue in the story of Joseph, we come to a part in the narrative where we're going to hear a long line of relatives who took the trip to Egypt after Jacob had discovered that Joseph, his son, who he thought was, was dead, was actually alive. And um, these are one of those sections of scripture um, I, I think that we tend to gloss over. A little truth moment here for a second. Sometimes in my own devotional life, I have been known to yada, yada, yada over the genealogies. Confession, okay? Um, I guess it probably, again, once proves that you are all holier than me because you wouldn't do such a thing like that, okay? But today, what I would like for us to do is I would like for us to not only read that, that kind of list of that family, but I would actually like us to dive deep into parts of that genealogy that are going to be brought up. And I'd like to take a look at one of the brothers um, that has been a part of this story from the beginning, but has primarily kind of been in the shadows. And I think Corey mentioned it as he read our scripture um, that we'll, we'll come back to in our, in our sermon today. But um, our sermon today is from Genesis 46. 
Uh, we're going to look at that whole chapter, but we're going to just read uh, two sections of it, even though I'll cover the whole thing. So on your own time, if you want to read those in between verses, I want to invite you to be able to do that. But starting in verse 1, we'll read 1 through 18 and then 26 through 31. It says this, So Israel set out with all that was his. And when he reached Beersheba, he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Then Jacob left Beersheba, and Israel's sons took their father Jacob and their children and their wives and the carts that Pharaoh had sent to transport him. And so Jacob and all of his offspring went to Egypt, taking with them their livestock and the possessions that they had acquired in Canaan. Jacob brought with him to Egypt his sons and grandsons and his daughters and his granddaughters, all his offspring. These are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his descendants. Who went to Egypt. Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of, of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shalah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan had died in the land of Canaan, the sons of Perez, Hezron, and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Pua, Jashub, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elan, and Jahalil. These were the sons of Leah, born to Jacob and Paddan Aram, besides his daughter Dinah. These sons and daughters of his, of his were 33 in all, the sons of Gad, Zephon, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Erai, Arodi, and Aralai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, and Bariah, and their sister was Sarah. The sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. These were the children born to Jacob by Zilpah, whom Laban had given to his daughter Leah, 16 in all. Skipping down to verse 26. All those who went to Egypt with Jacob, those who were, with, those who were his direct descendants, not counting his son's wives, numbered 66 persons. With the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family, which went to Egypt, were 70 in all. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. And when they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, now I am ready to die since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who are living in the land of Canaan have come to me. As I, as I said before, I would like for us to look at the, the person of Asher today. And I would like for us to see his story in the midst of what we have been looking at with Joseph. Now, if we are going to do that, I just have a little sneaking suspicion that you're not uh, a huge scholar of Asher's life, okay? That's just a small little tidbit out there. Truth be known, that wasn't me either about two weeks ago. So um, I think if we're going to do that, I think it's important for us to understand the larger picture 
of Asher and, and really for us to put ourselves in his shoes. And I think when I'm able to do that in scripture, when I'm able to look at those things, all of a sudden the Bible doesn't just become something I'm, I'm reading that happened a long time ago, but it almost enters me in to the story, and I'd like for us to be able to do that, right? So when we look at Asher, one of the first things we, we learn about him was that he was born from the line of Leah, who was one of Jacob's wives, okay? And that was his, his father's wives. And, and right off the bat here, that tells us something. Um, Asher was not from the line of Rachel. He was not born to Rachel. And uh, Jacob had two wives. He had Rachel and Leah. And Rachel was the one that he truly loved. And, uh, and that was really kind of the favored, uh, favored wife at that, at that moment. And so right off the bat, we see here that Asher was not somebody born from that kind of favored line, even in his family. And you could imagine the dynamics that would come into the family if we're putting ourselves in the shoes of, of, of Asher, right? You can understand how that would have an impact on that family. But not only that, so he was born from Leah's line, he actually wasn't even born from Leah herself. Uh, there was a time in both of those uh, Rachel and Leah's lives where they were barren and unable to bear children. And so during that time, they still had an emphasis of desiring to see their descendants continue to grow. And so they brought uh, their handmaids into the equation with their husband and really twisted his arm there. Okay, and, and, all, and, and so uh, really Asher was born to the handmaid Zilpah. So we find Asher's not only from not the favored line, but we also see that he wasn't even born from Leah. What an impact that might have on his life and his perspective. Now let's think about where Asher landed within his brothers. We, learned, we know he has, has 12 brothers and, and his sister Dinah as well. But when we look at, at the brothers, Asher wasn't the oldest, right? Uh, he wasn't the oldest. That was, that was Reuben. Um, he wasn't the strongest, at least if you're, if you're not going to be oldest, then get all, all of the credit, spoken like a true younger brother here, okay? Um, right? If you're not going to be the oldest and get all the stuff in the family, you might as well be the strongest. At least you got something. Well, he wasn't the strongest. That was Judah. He wasn't the youngest. That was doted on, as sometimes the youngest tends to get that in families. We know that that was Benjamin. And, and we also know that he wasn't the favorite, right? We've kind of talked a little bit about that. That was clearly Joseph. I mean, Asher, when we think about his life, he lived his life in the shadow of all that was kind of going on around him. And he had to learn from pretty early age to be content with the leftovers that he received, and I think we've already covered this as we've been looking at this narrative and looking at the, the story of Joseph and, and, and the family of Joseph and seeing how God works through all of that. But I think it's important to kind of mention this again, which is this, that the, this family is just completely full of dysfunction. I mean, think about it after what we've covered so far, right? I mean, we've got parental favoritism, we have sibling rivalry, we have deceit, we have resentment, we have lack of faith, we have desertion, and we have even attempted murder. I mean, this family's got it all. They're not lacking in anything. And it didn't just start with these brothers. 
As we look at the beginning of the Bible and we read about the beginning of God's people and the ones he used really to become that remnant that God wanted to keep until the Messiah was, was going to come back, it reads less like the Bible that I think most people expect and it more reads like a pilot to like a daytime soap opera. I mean, it sounds like more of the days of our lives than anything else. It's interesting, right, to think that the church tries to live like everything is fine. We've got it all together. When we spend our lives studying a book that's full of dysfunctional people. I mean, we, we've almost convinced ourselves that we are better off than we really are. I think this reminds me of, of certain uh, memes or pictures that I have seen online that do a comparison of what I think I look like versus what I really look like. And I'll just show a few of these pictures for you to get the idea. Um, for instance, when I, what I feel like I look like when I run versus what I really look like when I run, okay? Um, this would be one of them. Uh, next one is, is what I think I look like with the top down in my convertible versus what I really look like in the midst of me with my top down and my convertible. And uh, my wife can attest to this last one, what I think I look like when I sleep versus what I really look like um, when I, I sleep, right? I mean this, right? We don't, we don't have it all together, guys. The more we hide our weaknesses, the more we're unwilling to share our mess and how we are really doing, the more Satan keeps the power over that area in our life. Asher was, was with his brothers when they left Joseph for dead, when they sold him into slavery. Asher was there. And when we look at this point in Asher's life, it seems as though, right, he is an afterthought and, and not much is going to come from his story. It doesn't look like he is going to leave much of a legacy for those who are going to come after him. But the question is, we have to look at the rest of the story. Now, to begin with, we learn that Asher went to Egypt and had four sons and one daughter. And we learn of a blessing upon his family that his father, Jacob, gave to him and all his brothers before his death. I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we were talking uh, about Judah, and I would like to look at that same blessing again when it, when it mentions Asher. And in Genesis 49, 20, it says this, Asher's food will be rich, that he will provide delicacies fit for a king. I think, I, to me, when I first kind of read that, I'm like, this sounds like he's going to be like the next Food Network star or something like that. But, but if we actually dig into kind of what those words mean and, and what they mean in the context of that culture and that language, we recognize that this is actually more indicating prosperity that is going to happen in the future for Asher and his descendants. And so anytime we have a blessing that happens in Scripture, anytime we have this idea of this promise or, or this being given, we have to ask our, uh, the question, right? Does this actually come true? 
okay, yeah, it's said, but what does it say in the future? Is this something that actually takes fruition? And so I think we need to ask that. And so in order for us to see if this, this comes true, we're going to have to fast forward throughout Scripture. Now, I'm, I'm going to let you know I probably have a lot more Scripture because we're going to look at Asher's life. And we're not only looking at Asher's life, we're going to look at, at how Asher's life is viewed through everybody that kind of came after him. And so we're going to bounce around a lot. And uh, I, I hope that um, as we kind of see that, you're getting the idea and, and even maybe another reinforcement that uh, Scripture all works together. <laughs> uh, scripture interprets Scripture. God's Word is good and true in our lives and effective. And as we look at this, we're going to see this kind of web of how um, we see this come to, come to uh, fruition even over thousands of years, okay? So I would like for us to fast forward 400 years in Scripture to find out if this, in fact, came true, now, to set the scene 400 years later, Moses is nearing the end of his life after having led the Israelites out of Egypt. He's wandered with them in the desert, kind of wondering. He's given them the law multiple times, and he's now coming to the end of his life before leading them into the promised land, which we know it's not Moses. He passes the baton on to Joshua to be able to do that. And so before Moses kind of ends his ministry, over the Israelites, he gives the blessings to the 12 tribes of Israel, which are from the 12 sons of Jacob. And so we're seeing that connection here. And so um, he gives this blessing to these 12 tribes. And we, we uh, actually already read this blessing when, when Corey read it, but I would like for us to read it again. And uh, one of the things we didn't get from uh, what, when Corey read it was a little uh, something different that actually happens when the, within this blessing that we don't find in other parts of Scripture or that was regular in their culture. When blessings were given, they were often given from the oldest to the youngest. And we even kind of do some of these things culturally now. Um, and, and so that's kind of normally how things would go. It would go to the, to the oldest tribe or to the oldest son and then so on and so forth. But Moses puts this blessing in a different order, and he waits to give the blessing to Asher last. So let's read it again from Deuteronomy 33, 24 through 25. And it says this, About Asher, he said, Most blessed sons of sons is Asher. Let him be favored by his brothers, and let him bathe his feet in oil. The bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze, and your strength will equal your days. Now I'd like for us to take a moment here to think about those words. Not only for Asher, but I, I think also for us. And I'd like us to think about what these words mean for Asher and the implication that they too can have for you and for me. We don't always get to see the legacy we leave. We don't. We don't always get to see how the choices we make affect our children or our children's children. Sometimes we get those blessings as we got to see today with grandma and grandpa here, but we don't always get to, get to see that. And looking back to the beginning of what we hear of Asher's story, we see how he made mistakes early in his life. And not only mistakes, but big ones. In fact, um, all of those things, we have to ask the question, 
do those things end up defining him? Well, I think if we look at what Moses said to Asher's descendants and, and see how it was defined, we may be able to help answer that question. I'd like us to look at the different parts of what Moses said in that blessing. And we're going to look to see if that comes true throughout Scripture. Moses first says this, Most blessed of sons is Asher. Now, in this culture, the word blessed often communicated the blessings of having offspring. And so, was the tribe of Asher blessed in this way? Well, if you were to go to the, to the book of Numbers, right in the beginning of the book of Numbers, we see it's recorded that the tribe of Asher had 41,000 fighting men in the beginning of the book of Numbers. That's a big number. So I think about it, maybe his sigil, the tribe of his sigil should have been a rabbit at that point. No? Okay, I'll, I'll move away from that. But in Numbers, right, before the invasion of Canaan, it says that the tribe of Asher had swelled to 53,400 men. And that growth is not only impressive when you think about where they started in the beginning of the book, but if you were to read through the book of Numbers, you actually find out that the overall fighting men, the overall army had shrunk by 2,000 in the midst of his part of his tribe increasing by 12,400 fighting men. And so we see the descendants of Asher being blessed with this offspring as a part of his legacy. Well, next it says in Moses' blessing, let him be favored by his brothers. Now, favored means to be approved of or to be pleased in or to be lighted in. You know, Asher's tribe would be one that would create peace among the tribes. Being a peacemaker was something that was not only needed then, but it sure is still today. We need the peacemakers in our lives and in our families and in our churches. Asher's tribe was one that desired to build bridges instead of fences. See, they embody the words of the book of Ephesians, which wasn't even written yet, was written hundreds and thousands of years after it, where it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And so again, we see this blessing that Moses gave to the tribe of Asher's descendants being part of his legacy. We next see the blessing from Moses to Asher's tribe say, let him bathe his feet in oil. Now, you might have heard this before in, in maybe some biblical history, but the time in which they lived was definitely tough on one's feet. I mean, they walked around on tough roads, on hard roads, and, and either barefoot or in small, you know, flimsy sandals, okay? No Birkenstocks going on at that point, all right? Uh, I mean, it was customary when people would go in, into people's houses for them to provide water so that they could wash their feet, so they could clean their feet and have a little bit of, 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 of just reprieve for, uh, for their feet and all of the things that they went through. And, um, and it, was, um, it was only the prosperous that could afford to use olive oil um, to soothe their feet. 
Now, as I mentioned, Moses handed off the baton to Joshua to finally take the Israelites into the promised land, finally into the land that, that had been promised to, to Abraham and his descendants after that. And when Joshua, when they finally took the promised land that they had been promised of, um, Joshua gave over the land and the area of Galilee to the tribe of Asher. And in the area of Galilee, the soil was rich. And olive trees flourished in this area. If you were to actually go to this area, to Galilee, and if, if some of you have ever been able to take a trip to Israel, you would know that, that, that even in that area today, there are olive trees that are some of the most uh, uh, productive olive trees in the world. Olive trees in that area, one olive tree produces about 15 gallons of olive oil per year per tree. The richness of having feet dipped in oil should have reminded the tribe of Asher and of us the riches that we receive from God. The riches of God's grace. The riches of Christ in our life. As it says in the book of Ephesians, in Scripture, if you were to actually look at uh, throughout, that's mentioned throughout, throughout Scripture, um, that uh, oil is also a symbol of the Holy Spirit and His anointing on, on God's people. If you go to some of our black churches in, in America, when, when, when they hear a pastor who is full of passion or, or, or full of the Holy Spirit, they say, he must have had his feet dipped in oil. I just, I love hearing that. Any of you want to say that for me at any point, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it, Okay. But as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking, you know, if we are in Christ, then all of our feet have been dipped in oil. Because we have all been given the Holy Spirit and his indwelling in our lives and his anointing in our life. Finally, Mo Mo Moses finishes his blessing with the bolts of your gates will be iron and bronze and your strength will equal your days. I mean, this was a promise of strength, a, a strength to stand against their enemies. In 1 Chronicles 7, which is another part of Israel's history, in chapter 7, verse 40, it says, All these were descendants of Asher, heads of family, choice men, brave warriors, and outstanding leaders. There was a blessing of strength that as, as many days as they shall have, so shall be their strength. See, we know that our enemy does prowl around like a roaring lion looking for its next prey. But we see here in, in Asher's life and his descendants' life, that we, and, and we know it's true for us too, that if, if we are in Christ, we are in God, and we have him in our life, we have been given a strength to resist. That there is no temptation, there is no calamity that can ever crumble us. That there is neither height nor depth nor anything, nor angels nor demons, nor anything in this world that can ever separate us from the love of Christ. One last little tidbit. Soon after Jesus was born, his parents brought him to the temple to present him to the Lord. And during this, they met an old woman named Anna. And I'd like to read just a few of those verses here. In Luke chapter 2, 36 through 40, we read, there was, there was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old, and she had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. 
and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. See, Asher's descendants pointed to the one in whom we have redemption. We get to see that the redemption of of our sins and the redemption that our Savior provides from that separation that was a part of our story but does not have to continually be a part of our story. Want to talk about a legacy? That's a legacy. That's a legacy. Leaving a legacy for thousands of years of people who can point to Christ the redeemer of our story. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord for making what is available, that part of that story for you and for me. See, Christ works into the dysfunction of our stories and he makes things new. We have to be able to see that opportunity for that legacy in our lives, not only for the impact on our families, but for everybody that God has put us in contact with that we get to be a part of that and we get to leave a legacy of telling people about Jesus Christ and the hope that we can have in him in the midst of the hopelessness that our world tries to offer. You know, when I come to the end of my days, there's one thing that I, I, I hope to be true. That when I come to the end of my days, the people around me say, Christian loved Jesus. He loved Jesus and he wanted to tell other people about the hope that they can have in Jesus too. Does that sound like a legacy you want to leave? I know it's true for me. When we look at the story of Asher and to think about that in the midst of our lives and what God has provided being the savior of our story and giving us an opportunity of a legacy of eternal life with him a redemption from our sin and the brokenness of our world and the life that we get to have with him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, um, Lord, as we get to hear about this legacy that is offered for us, the legacy that we hear of the gospel, the good news that we get to hear of that, that you have been the redeemer of our story and the world's story. And that invitation is is, is right in front of us. And even in the midst of us living into the dysfunction of our own lives, even at moments where we've made mistakes and we've we've separated ourselves from you, Lord, that you give an invitation for us to not only redeem our stories now, but to leave a legacy to come. Father, I pray that that inspires us to, to live a life worthy of the calling that you have given us and put before us. We pray this in your name. Amen.